you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you do read it, you're misinformed. What is the long-term effect of too much information? Information, information, I just need some information. I've been dying, I've been dying, is it lack of education? I've been reading, I've been reading without any transformation. I'm addicted, I'm addicted, is it overstimulation? Hey. Welcome to the success report. The success Hear ye, hear ye, come one, come all. You are listening to The Sixth Sense Report with Joel Nikoloff and Darnell Samuels. Yo, man, we've got something special today. Special? Why you say special, Joel? If the audience could see the scenery, they would know. For, for starters, we're, we're on location. And we are on site at the Ezra Institute. Uh, outside it said Ezra Farmlands. I, I kind Farmlands, of that. yeah. Ezra Farmstead. Farmstead. F- Farmstead in Grimsby, Ontario with uh, Pastor... Dr. Joe Boot. Hello, Joe Boot. Welcome. It's good to be with you. Thanks for coming out here all this way. Yeah, yeah, no problem. It's, uh, it's, it's our pleasure. Uh, now, for the listeners who don't know you, uh, can you give them a background on who you are and, and what the Ezra Institute is about? Sure. I'm uh, basically a, a cultural apologist and Christian philosopher. I came to Canada uh, 17 years ago nearly now to work with uh, Dr. Ravi Zacharias. I was working with the Zacharias Trust in Oxford for a couple of years before coming here in the work of Christian apologetics. And then about uh, 12 years ago, I planted Westminster Chapel in downtown Toronto and in 2009 established the Ezra Institute. And uh, recently, about three years ago, God was very gracious to us, gave us the resources to acquire our own study center, which is on this farmstead here. And the Ezra Institute is basically a Christian world and life you think tank so we think, we write, uh, we speak, and we do um, Christian worldview and cultural apologetics uh, residential training. So uh, people come to us for programs in, in cultural apologetics primarily. And so we have published a journal called uh, Jubilee. We have an active website and a small team here. And we have an itinerary outside of our residential work here as well. It takes us around the world. Wow. And you were also a pastor at Westminster Yeah, so I was the founding pastor of Westminster Chapel in Toronto, and about two and a half years ago, uh, about after 10 years, I stepped down as the senior pastor uh, to focus on the Institute, but I'm still the founding pastor at large, they call me, (laughs) Um, and so I still preach once a month at Westminster, that's my home church. Okay, great, great. Now, we wanted to do this particular show as laying the foundation for future shows that Joel and I plan to do investigating institutional racism and finding where the problems may lay. But before we get into that, we wanted to lay a foundation for Christians on a biblical understanding of institutions and sphere sovereignty, uh, particularly dealing with, we're going to address the individual, the church, the family, the state, and how God wants these institutions to operate within society. That way we can kind of give our listeners a framework for when we actually start getting into more detailed, specific institutions, just like school system, the banking system, the police, and so forth. So we, we wanted to kind of give a biblical understanding for that. So can you kind of help us walk through that, starting with the individual? Mm-hmm. Well, let's maybe start with the concept of sphere sovereignty, which um, I don't know how familiar your listeners are with uh, with this basic idea. Uh, they probably, probably not. <laughs> yeah. So we could maybe start there and, and talk about what th- uh, uh, that means, essentially. So 
it was probably Groen van Prinsteren, who was a, uh, a Dutch thinker shortly after the French Revolution, who um, used the term, or at least began to speak and, and talk about these sorts of spheres. Some would argue you could possibly trace it back to an even earlier thinker, but certainly Groen van Prinsteren begins this sort of tradition. And then it was picked up by the more well-known Dutch theologian and thinker and prime minister, Abraham Kuyper, yeah, I'm familiar who with would him. probably be more familiar with. And uh, what uh, Kuiper argued was that this was not some sort of social construct that they were trying to impose, but rather this was a creational idea that, that when we look at creation itself, uh, and as we look at creation in conjunction with scripture, we see that God has established different spheres of authority and different spheres within uh, creation itself that are distinct from one another, that are meant to be distinct from one another, recognized as distinct from one another, that are governed by, in a typical way, by their own laws and norms. So that the family, for example, as a sphere of authority, um, so when he talked about sphere sovereignty, he didn't mean that these were spheres that were independent of God, uh, but rather that they were under God. So uh, as you look at these different spheres of life, and you've talked about the individual, the family, society, the state, and so forth, and then different institutions within society, these spheres are governed by their own typical law structures, and that they're not really interchangeable. You can't govern the family like you would govern the state. That would be a terrifying thing. Um, and you don't govern the church as the family is governed. That would be a pretty odd uh, structure in the life of the church. And so uh, he argued, and these, this tradition argues that there are these different creational spheres that God has established and that we need to recognize. And that as society begins to subject itself or submit itself to God, it begins to differentiate these different spheres. And that when uh, the danger is, if you, if we don't recognize them, we don't protect these different spheres, they of course touch, but if we don't want one sphere swallowing all of the others in a parts to whole relationship, if we don't recognize that, then actually the damage to society is um, far-reaching. And uh, especially when we think about the state and the, when the state begins to swallow the other parts of society, the family, the school, the individual, the church, then you have totalitarianism, for example. So that was the basic idea of sphere sovereignty. And you can depict it, I mean, the listener can depict it in their mind's eye with circles that are touching one another, but they are not overlapping one another and swallowing each other up in a parts to whole fashion. They are distinct and they remain distinct. Mm -hmm. So what would you say the role of the individual is? Well, it's interesting that you start there because actually when we think about human history and we look at um, uh, political uh, life or what we can call sort of early political life, the individual wasn't the most important um, or wasn't seen as significant. It was the tribe. It was the, uh, the well, first of all, the, the sort of family structure and then the tribal structure. Um, so the idea of the importance of the individual is actually a much later uh, idea that comes up within the Christian tradition. So where the Christian gospel is birthed into the Greco-Roman world, um, you really had uh, very little significance as an individual if you weren't a citizen within the polis. If you weren't a Roman citizen, your individuality and individual rights were not uniform. Um, even in the life of the family, the um, 
the, 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 the father within the Roman family had a kind of power of life and death of an almost an absolute power over its members. He could execute members of the family. Uh, he could dispense with um, members of the family, wives and so on and so forth, almost at will. So the, the, um, the, the individual where you've started there is, is significant. It's not that we, the individual is more important than the family or more important than society, but the individual is significant within society. And uh, individual rights and responsibilities being recognized, individual freedoms being recognized is a product of the gradual recognition of different spheres of life and authority. So what is it that protects my rights as an individual today? Uh, what is it that recognizes me as, an, as a significant person within society today is what we would call civil law, which is there to protect the freedom of individuals. We talk about our freedom of speech as an individual, our freedom of assembly, our freedom of religion. These kind of individual freedoms are the product of the development of civil law. Um, and uh, that aspect of um, our uh, societal life is, is um, particularly important within the Christian tradition. So the individual, as a Christian, we would say the individual is made in the image of God, um, is, uh, is tasked with serving God from a Christian standpoint to, to rule and subdue. But the individual is set in the context of family and community. And so there are both um, responsibilities and um, uh, we, we might say in, the, in modern language rights and responsibilities that come to us as individuals. And it's uh, been the product of the development of a Christian law order which recognized the importance and significance of a separate area of law to protect the individual, civil law. Would you, um, would you say that the concept of inalienable rights really comes forth from that? Yeah, I would say that um, the, the idea of, of, of basic um, human dignity, uh, of um, equality before the law, of the rule of law, and rights under the law, governed by law, is a product of the Christian tradition. Um, of course, humanists have tried to and secularists have tried to uh, claim some of this, but um, the reality is that without the Christian idea of the importance of the individual, uh, the the equal dignity of human persons made in the image of God, and the protection that God's law affords people through the rule of law, we would never have seen the emergence of modern Western um, political life. So yes, I would say that if you're looking at the American tradition there and the idea of inalienable uh, rights, um, uh, although the, the Bible doesn't use the language of rights, it talks about justice and law and righteousness and responsibility and covenant, the basic idea of of uh, human dignity and equality before God and before the law is very much out of the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament scriptures, yes. And what about like the idea of, would you say that the individual represents the private sector and their ability to create industry? Is that part of the sovereignty? Yeah, so uh, there are public institutions and there are private institutions and they're governed by different uh, um, uh, law spheres or typical law structures. Um, but yes, the, the, the freedom of the individual, economic freedom of the individual, um, uh, the freedom of the individual to, to, to marry, 
and uh, own property and conduct business. These are all things protected in, in, in civil law. And they are very much part of the, 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 the realm and the role of the individual, that the idea that, that, that any institution, including the state, uh, could in, sort of encroach and, and uh, take away my freedom to marry or my freedom to own property or my uh, freedom to associate or my freedom to exercise, uh, uh, to develop a business and, and exercise an economic freedom, that would be a mark of um, of totalitarianism and, and the collapse of um, a free society. And so, uh, how would you define totalitarianism? So totalitarianism is basically the idea that um, one... Uh, area, one sphere, if you will, to keep to keep moving with this idea of sphere sovereignty, one sphere can um, relate to the others in parts to whole fashion, which is to say that it can swallow up the other um, spheres of life uh, as though they were a part, just a part of a greater whole. So the most obvious one, uh, most obvious form of totalitarianism is the absolutist notion of the state where the state starts to regard the family, the church, the individual, uh, the school, uh, the medical field, the econ economic life as, as all lesser parts of a greater whole called the state. When in fact, actually the only parts, strictly speaking, uh, strictly speaking of a state are provinces and municipalities. Those are the parts of a state territory. But the idea that you can drop civil society, family, church, and so on um, as parts simply of the state um, is uh, the mark of totalitarianism. So totalitarianism is the idea that, that you would treat other parts of society, other parts of human life as merely uh, other, other spheres of human life, I should say, as merely lesser parts of the state so that they can be controlled manipulated, governed, ruled in every part by a civil government, by the state. As you were saying that, I don't know, the word that came to mind was like the the attempt to make all other spheres subordinate. Mm -hmm. Would you say that's a good yeah. way of thinking yes. about it? Yeah. yeah, I mean, there is, of course, the Roman Catholic doctrine of subsidiarity, mm -hmm. um, where um, you've sort of got a hierarchy and uh, there's a certain amount of delegated freedom given to these subordinate parts, but they are in the end in a hierarchy, uh, whereas sphere sovereignty would say, no, there is no hierarchy. It's not that the state is higher or more important or greater than the family or the church or the private business. It's that they're different mm -hmm. and they relate to one another, but they relate to one another in that sense equally, right? There's a, there's a, they, they cannot be exchanged for one another. Um, they cannot be... Um, switched out for one another. You cannot import the, 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 the law or typical function of one for the other. They have to be treated as independent. That's why we speak about sphere sovereignty and not just spheres. Um, these are sovereign spheres and uh, they, they, they can't be treated in this hierarchical fashion. Okay, so what about the family now? What role does the family play in society? So the family and, and of uh, this is probably important to say, it is a pre-political institution. <laughs> what does that mean? Um, and that means that uh, the family is not something that's defined or created by political life. So uh, the notion that, for example, let's take modern Canadian culture, the idea that 
the the state or the courts can come along and redefine the family and say we're gonna uh, we're gonna redefine that whole institution and thereby politicize it um, is illegitimate from the Christian standpoint of sphere sovereignty. The the family being a pre-political institution um, is the place where um, uh, the role of the family in in that sense is the place where uh, children are nurtured. Uh, The family has a tremendous role in providing um, guidance. The family is responsible ultimately for education, not the state. It's my responsibility to educate my children, not the state's responsibility. I may delegate that responsibility to certain teachers but it's still my responsibility. It's still the family's responsibility. Uh, The family provides care, of course, care for the elderly, right? So I'm responsible according to scripture for my parents. Right, that makes sense. For the care of my parents. I'm responsible for, the family is responsible for raising children. It's responsible for welfare in many respects. So, Hmm, so? uh, so the, well, for example, so the family provides the vast bulk of welfare in society. So I provide for my children. I'm responsible for providing for my children. I I work so that my children can be provided for. And then, of course, the family has tremendous power in society because it controls inheritance. So I have the ability then to pass on, of course, in some Western uh, states now, as they've become more Marxist, more socialistic, the state is seizing inheritance through inheritance taxes and redistributing it. But the the family has tremendous power because it... um, it, it, it passes on inheritance. So I can pass on uh, wealth to my children so that they have a start in life as well. So um, education, uh, largely welfare. I mean, think about the, the way that the family funds its children through frequently through university and then children boomerang. You think you've gotten rid of them, you send them off, and they boomerang back to your house, <laughs> and uh, they're living in your basement. And when they've got particular needs, so if if your if your children first get married and they they want to buy their first car or they're trying to raise a deposit for their first home, they typically go to their parents and say, "Can you give us any help?" Or pay for the wedding. Or pay for the wedding. <laughs> right. All of these things. Right. So the family is providing education, is providing welfare, is providing support, is providing guidance. And it's pre-political and it provides a defense mechanism. The family prevents the individual from being naked before the state. Right? The family is one of the reasons why modern uh, uh, society, modern anti-Christian society is trying to break down the family is it wants to treat the individual as a unit, as a unit within simply the state, as a naked unit to be controlled, governed, educated, welfare, everything by the state. The family protects you against that, protects you from that kind of manipulation and control. And uh, that's why the, the family is so important, is so central in, in all of our lives. Mm-hmm. And uh, what about the church? So the church is another uh, sovereign sphere, uh, is an institution that's established by God. I mean, obviously, the three most obvious uh, spheres are family, church, and state, um, as we see them institutionally uh, established in scripture, and we see them in society. The church, um, again, is a distinct institution governed by its own typical law structure. So there is a law structure within the church. Often Christians fail to recognize the church is a form of government uh, in our lives, right? We, under the, we submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ, and remember with sphere sovereignty, Jesus Christ is Lord and sovereign King, and all of these other spheres of life are under him. 
And like the individual, like the family, like the state, the church is under the Lord Jesus Christ and is governed in, in, a, in, in terms of its own law structure. So the church has its own confession and it will have its own organization. So it has deacons or elders or presbyters or bishops and archbishops and so on. And it has its own structure of discipline. It can excommunicate its, its members for heresy or for rebellion and unrepentant sin and so on. So, it's a, so the church, its role is to be a form of government. And uh, if you look at the way in which the, uh, the church is spoken of in Scripture, we are, in a certain sense, Christ's embassy. We're, we're God's embassy in the earth. And we are, within the church, are prophets, priests, and kings. So you and I, each of us, are... As Christ diaconate, according to um, the New Testament, we have a prophetic, priestly, and kingly role within society. So the Church of Jesus Christ, under Christ the head, is um, an institution. Of course, the church, we could talk at length about the church as the body of Christ, the church as a local community, the different ways in which the, the church is spoken of. But now I'm talking about, because you're asking me about the institution, the institutional expression of the church. So nobody would say, oh, look, there's Westminster Chapel. Um, if we can blow that building up, we've destroyed the church. No, the body of Christ would still exist. The church of Jesus Christ would still exist. It's not simply the bricks and mortar, but it gets expressed institutionally through property, and the church is free from tax. So the state cannot tax the church historically in the Western world because you can't tax God's embassy, right? It's, it's, it, the, the, the church collects the tithes from its people, and it uses that tithe to expand the work of the kingdom of God in various different spheres of life. So the church is a place of um, teaching, so where it's the, 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 the sacraments are administered, uh, and, and, and through the sacraments, a kind of government is, is administered. And then the churches are also, the marks of the church are the administration of the sacraments, um, uh, the preaching of the word of God, and the, and the uh, administration of diaconal care. Uh, church discipline and the administration of diaconal care. Um, and we are then sent out as God's people into the world as Christ diaconate to have a prophetic voice, that is to call um, all power and authority to obedience to Christ. That's what the prophets do to, to God's word, obedience to God's word. We have a priestly function, that is to, to minister the, the grace of the gospel to people. And we have a kingly function, which is to bring all spheres of life into subjection to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the calling of the Christian. And the church is the institution that uh, equips, trains, disciplines, loves, serves, and sends out the Christian in that task. That's what the institution of the church does. And again, the church institution pr protects you from being na a naked individual before the state. The, 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 the church is, again, a pre-political institution. It cannot be controlled or defined by the state. It cannot be ruled by the state. It's an era, here you have an, era, an area I talked about, you asked about the individual, that's the area of civil law. The church is in an area of what we would call civil private law. And that is another um, law structure within society which protects us from a totalitarian view. So there's public law, there's civil law, and there's civil private law. And that's where the church operates. Well, it's funny you bring that up because... Uh in light of what happened with COVID-19 and shutting down the churches <laughs> and your work with the Charter Challenge. Can you uh, unpack that quickly for us and let us know the work that you guys were doing? 
Sure. So during the um, the, the mass lockdown of uh, uh, families and businesses and, and churches, um, obviously one of the big questions that was coming up for people is is the lawfulness of that in terms of the Canadian Charter, which guarantees certain fundamental rights and freedoms. Um, Unlike the U.S. Constitution, the Canadian Charter wants to throw some caveats in there, and um, and and this is where you know we fell foul, as if you will, of one of these caveats, which is you know unless there's sufficient justification, but there is. The courts have been clear that that the the justification for the removal of any of those freedoms is an extremely high bar, and so the question became: Does the state, does the does the province in this case? Uh, does it really meet the standard of justification for shutting down the life of the church? And where um, myself and another pastor called Aaron Rock particularly were, became very concerned about this and, and drafted a, a one letter, and, and then we, uh, which in the end some 450 churches signed, and then we drafted a second letter which just the two of us signed for means of expediency. Uh, we also uh, were talking and engaged with, at that point, a lawyer from the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms because we were concerned that um, the... Well, for, the first problem was the legality of the lockdown altogether. I mean, there's the Bible certainly recognizes the importance of quarantining the sick and those with whom they have immediate contact. We see that in Levitical law. But the mass lockdown of healthy populations so that they can't work, they can't worship. Work and worship are two things, both things that are pre-political. We're not granted permission to work by the state. We're not given permission to worship by the state. Those are God-given. So the first question was, is the lockdown, the mass lockdown of healthy populations lawful? Um, the second question then became when we, when we then um, started to engage government was, when Home Depot's open, um, when people are protesting in the streets, when um, businesses are being opened up, but the church isn't being allowed to open up uh, in, to any degree, I mean, like five people in a, in a church building, um, there's, a, there's a problem there in terms of, and you're absolutely right, um, of sphere sovereignty. How can the the state, which is the area of public law, suspend civil law um, in the area of personal freedoms, and then effectively suspend civil private law, the, the the life of the family, the life of independent business, and then the life of the church? And that was, of course, our concern as pastors, as leaders, is do we have a violation of sphere sovereignty here, where the state says we are responsible for health and human well-being? And human well-being is reduced to non-exposure to a virus. And our argument was, no, human health and well-being involves the cultural task of being able to work and worship. And when you deny people these things um, en masse, uh, indefinitely, by this kind of a lockdown, um, have you not actually violated the sphere sovereignty of the, the family and of the church? Now, of course... You can't make that argument to bureaucrats in provincial government. They don't understand sphere sovereignty for the most part, but they do understand, you know, separation of powers. They understand the importance of the charter and basic rights and freedoms. 
uh, I did explain to these bureaucrats the, um, the, 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 the first free institution in the Western history was the Christian church and that freedom f was birthed because of the independence of the church of Jesus Christ um, and that um, freedom of worship, freedom of assembly, that these things are, are, are critically important. And I actually said, if the state forbids what God commands or commands what God forbids, civil disobedience is a Christian duty. And so uh, there was an infringement there on the, when the church is singled out for being shut down, when business and other areas are being opened up, there you have uh, a, a, a very clear problem with the charter and you have a manifest uh, violation of sphere sovereignty. Yeah, no, that, that's very helpful. Uh, Joel, did you have any questions about uh, moving on to government? Um, I, I, I wanted to, to touch on the charter thing because I heard kind of it through the grapevine that, uh, I, I don't know if this, you know, in terms of the what they granted <laughs> the church with regards to the 30% sort of uh, Trudeau attending the, the, the rallies and being sort of in the crowd uh, was somewhat of a catalyst um, for the decision as, I mean, it was that time frame as well as um, somewhat unexpected for a lot of churches, I think. Yeah, so, I mean, to be clear, there, there were quite a lot of churches who were either ambivalent or even opposed to what we were doing. And um, we faced quite a lot of opposition from, yeah, from, uh, from, from, from Christian leaders in the background, um, you know, people writing articles and blogging on the subject and so on. Um, and um, some even, you know, regarding us as, um, you know, irresponsible or whatever. And, and the, the view was, you know, we just do whatever the state says. And when the state says we can worship, then we'll worship. Um, but uh, not until not until that time. Um, and so the um, it, it, it certainly helped us that when we were, you know, engaging with government that we got first so many churches behind us. And then it certainly then helped further that, um we were able to point to businesses that were opening. And then when protests started happening, it only further um, reinforced our, our case. But really, it was the fact that with the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, we were implicitly threatening, in fact, explicitly threatening a charter challenge if the churches were not reopened. So I'd have said that the, the weight of the signatories to the letter led to the um, uh, opportunity for conversations with the office of the chief medical officer and some of the bureaucrats, uh, which is where the power was very much lying because there were many of the MPPs were actually on our side. They, they believed that um, the churches needed to be opened up, allowed to open, but there was resistance from, you know, public health officials. And so when the charter threat was there, that's when we began to see the, uh, the opening up. Now, you know, um, you mentioned the, the, the role of government and of the state. And of course, the state government, uh, civil government, I should say, does have an important role. Um, we're not, we shouldn't be anarchists. And the Christian has never been somebody who is, a, um, or should never be someone who is opposed to the legitimate role of um, civil government uh, and, and a, a legitimate role for the state. What's the nature of the state? Well, the, the peculiar character of the state is, is um, a public law and the harmonizing of public legal interests. And what God gives to the state uh, in scripture is sword power. 
a, 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 a monopoly on the means of force. So the church doesn't execute people. <laughs> the family doesn't execute people. The state is given this coercive power. It's the one institution that's, been, that's given sword power uh, to th with that kind of coercive legal public law force. And that uh, has a legitimate role in um, restraining evil, uh, Scripture says, um, and um, the, the, those who are righteous have nothing to fear from a just order, from a just state. Um, and, and that, of course, is the big question, right? When is the state acting justly and in terms of what, uh, what criteria? So the, the state has an important role, and that's why, you know, the police and courts and judges and um, civil government officials are important uh, as long as the state stays within its sphere of, of competency and authority, which is the sphere of public law and order. But when it starts to try and become your parent or your pastor, and you listen to Justin Trudeau and you think, does the man think he's the pastor of the nation? Um, does he think he's the parent? of the nation, um, when the state tries to step into that kind of a role, then it's stepped outside of, of its sphere of authority. And the reason it's so dangerous for the state to move outside of that is because it carries sword power, this power of coercion. If you bring the, the state's jurisdiction over into the jurisdiction of the life of the family, then you get the redefinition of marriage. You get the, uh, the, the your children being seized if you don't give them um, therapy and hormone blockers um, for, gen for gender confusion or gender dysphoria. If you bring the state into the heart of the, the control of health and medicine and well human well-being, you get mass lockdowns of the healthy, you get state-funded abortion, you get state-funded and promoted euthanasia. Um, if you bring it into the heart of the economy to control and rule the economy, you get a managed or planned economy. You get socialism, right? You get uh, state interventionism. You get the manipulation of the markets. You get the collapse of the, the free market. So that's why we have to be so careful where we bring uh, the, the, the jurisdiction of the state if it moves outside of its sphere of authority and competency. So one of the, the you know, thoughts that that I've always sort of had with respect to, um, you know, the use, the use of force or the use of coercion um, has, you know, at least for me seems in a, in a biblical sense, you know, restitution or, or, you know, rectifying injustices. Um, and, you know, I guess to along the lines of what you're saying, it's like, you know, how much we, we, I would say we see a lot of governments stepping outside of, you know, those things and moving into morality enforcement or, or different things. And so, you know, from a, a biblical perspective, um, can you give us sort of, you know, what are the rails that we should, as Christians, expect government to be in line with? Um, and and I, I want to maybe there's a secondary question to that with respect to, um, you know, how much do you find the severes of sovereignty view versus subsidiarity view within sort of Christian, you know, uh, paradigms? So from a, from a scriptural standpoint, uh, the, the basic idea of justice, which is this, the state is a ministry of justice. Um, and the basic idea there is tribution. Sometimes that takes the form of retribution. So criminal justice, um, and, uh, at other times, um, it may be that the, the, the state has an obligation to promote 
certain other things, right? Um, I mean, if you're if you're opposed to murder, you're promoting life. So tribution is the basic idea, um, to tributive, to, to, to uh, give to people according to their due. And um, uh, obviously that has, a, uh, has a, uh, a criminal aspect to it in terms of retribution. Uh, I believe that from a scriptural standpoint, we have to take the standing law of God's commandments, the, the Ten Commandments, as the, as the basic foundation of law. And that was the basic foundation of law in the Western legal tradition, um, beginning with Alfred the Great, actually, uh, in England, the English common law, as we, sp as we think about Canada, began with the Ten Commandments and then portions from um, the case laws of Moses and the Book of Acts and so on and so forth. So the, the lines within which the state is to play is to be a ministry of justice. Um, and if it starts to step out of that role um, to... Uh, so we can see, for example, in the in the in the in the scriptures that um, you, the state does need a small tax. It was like a head tax or a poll tax because there needs to be to have a ministry of justice. You need obviously police. You need courts. You need governors. You need government, and that costs money. So you have a, a small, uh, and I emphasize the word small, small tax um, that is legitimate. And um, beyond that, you might have in a, in, a, in, in, a, in a modern and not agrarian society, you might have certain minimal services like a fire service. Uh, um, and maybe you've got, you have to have certain public works because if your roads are crossing territories or trains are crossing territories or airports need to be built, you need certain structures uh, in which a harmony of legal interests can be reached so that there may be certain um, limited public works that are necessary. Beyond that, um, uh, and, and, and it's, it's almost radical to say so, um, what, there, is, there is no justification for the, the, or no, certainly no biblical prescription or justification for the state taking over education or medicine uh, or moving into the, the the management of the economy, or controlling the church um, and the and 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 the ruling of the church, and so on and so forth. And I think that's what is disturbing for thoughtful Christians as they look at the direction of modern Western society. I mean, when you think about politicians, you think about Congress in the United States or the Senate, or you think about parliaments in England. You had the Commons and the Lords. These weren't in the past. These were not full time jobs. Uh, you know, Congress sat for a few weeks. Parliaments came together to, to consider issues of major importance. Now you have a, a massive professional, political, and bureaucratic class so that one of the largest employers, um, if not the largest employer in Western nations today, is the state. So the, the, the rails, as you say, that the, the, the state, from a, I believe from a Christian standpoint, should be playing on is to, is to be a, a, a ministry of justice that is concerned with the harmony of legal interests, public, public law over a particular territory, not the running of people's lives in this kind of nanny state conception that we have today and the idea that it's the state's job to not only provide rule of law, um, and, uh, 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 but to, to establish an equal opportunity for everybody in every area of life, and then an equal outcome 
in every area of life for people. I mean, even this language of e the state's job is to provide an equal opportunity. Does that mean the state has to provide everyone with an equal opportunity to marry? I mean, doesn't your potential for marrying require that you, um, you know, isn't there a disparity there? I mean, here we've got a handsome young man who's gainfully employed. He was able to marry. Mm -hmm. But what? They're talking about me, guys. <laughs> but but uh, but 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 what if um, you are not gainfully employed, and um, maybe you are struggling in the looks department? And bathe once um, a month. <laughs> uh, <laughs> maybe you wash once every six months. Um, that is going to affect your marriage, your marriageability, your your potential to finding a spouse. I mean, as, if you don't look after your appearance. You don't have a job. Is it the state's job to provide you with an equal opportunity to marry? Um, so, and then what, what we've come to now is that the state is meant to provide us with equal outcomes in all of our opportunities. Whereas really the state's role in scripture is that there is one law, right? There is, the, where is equality before the law. There is the rule of law. That's what we see in ancient Israel. And that's the tradition that comes down to us in the Western legal tradition. Well, you know, so currently in this present climate that we're in, the term institution uh, is a buzzword and it's, it's a loaded term. Uh, it's institutional racism, systemic racism. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give two definitions according to um, proponents of systemic racism. So there's this woman named uh, Trisha Rose and she has this how structural racism works and her work is what we're seeing a lot in the viral videos on systemic racism basically showing um uh, 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 a system where black people are stuck in it and so she defines structural racism as uh, the normalization and legitimization of an array of dynamics historical cultural institutional and interpersonal that routinely advantage whites while producing cumulative and chronic adverse outcomes for people of color. Okay, so that's one definition. And for the people who are listening at home, um, you know, push, pause, follow, write it down, um, and think about and and think about and think about what I just said. And now the other one is um, by Robin D'Angelo, and she's another proponent of uh, systemic racism, and she defines it as all systems of oppression are highly adaptive. They can adapt to challenges and incorporate them. They can allow for exceptions. So this is the definition um, we've been given. Um, so we're gonna chop that up. But um, what do you what do you what do you think, Joe? What do you think? Well, I think it's probably first important to note that um, that that none of these ideas just appear out of nowhere. Okay, they have a they have a they have a long uh, intellectual history, um, and th this essential idea was perhaps um, first articulated, or at least articulated in its modern form, by the first truly uh, European um, public intellectual Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who was the one of the philosophers who certainly um, influenced greatly the French Revolution and all major revolutions since with his thinking. And basically his idea was that human beings are born free, but that society 
and in particular Christian civilization, because he was in France and he was in the grip of Christian civilization or, or at least a Christianized civilization, uh, broadly speaking. He saw and, uh, and believed that the problems of, um, the, the, all the problems in the world were down to the structures, the institutions, the cultural norms of civil society. And the target of his criticism ultimately was um, uh, these, basically these um, structures or these norms that are creational, uh, like the family, like the church, um, like uh, the way in which um, um, markets and money actually operates. So he believed that... Um, uh, without getting into the details of all of his uh, political philosophy and the idea of the general will and how you must delegate your freedom to the state and the state will represent the general will and will then you know, make you free and you'll be coerced to be free if you oppose it. it was, he had a totalitarian doctrine of, of the state. But his basic idea, his revolutionary idea, which has been copied ever since, is that the problem in society is institutions. The problem is civil society. And that... Um, the, that we must go around identifying problems um, and, uh, and we will equate those problems causally to various institutions and structures. So it's not simply that um, uh, the family or, or the church or um, uh, economics convey a disparity in society or a difference. Uh, it's that they are the cause of it. Because what Trudeau, um, Trudeau he, he did as well, he does as well. <laughs> what Rousseau really believed was in this radical egality and fraternity, right? A radical egalitarianism of that everything must be reduced to a, a bland equality, um, a, a kind of sameness. And so we're seeing that right now being pushed in various movements, radical feminism, um, queer theory, uh, race theory, is that uh, the that society has, has created these disparities and we must remove every hierarchy, every structure, destroy hierarchies and structures in order to realize a utopia. A utopia without police, without courts, without uh, any disparity where there's an absolute egality uh, equality and uh, fraternity um, between between people. So that's the in 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 broad terms. That is what um, the, the 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 fundamental idea is. That's the intellectual history of the idea that institutions um, are responsible for the ills within human society. Mm -hmm. And and I guess now those intellectual ideas have been formed into memes. Right, that we see online that come into our our news feed on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, and those things catch fire, man. Those things go viral real fast, and you know they end up in your feed and your inbox, and people are like, okay, so what do you do with this? Uh, I I think about uh, in the is it the Kev the Kevin and Jamal video that's been going around, and the one thing that stuck out to me was the the loans, right? The redlining and the and the loans, and uh, I guess for me, the way out, what I was thinking was in order to get a loan, right? Because, so, you know, basically redlining is saying, okay, we're not going to let black people have loans. So, you know, the white people are getting loans. But what stuck out to me was that those white people who got loans were able to pay the property tax. 
And as um, I was as I was thinking is, was that you know the nicer your neighborhood, the the more money you got, the, the more property tax you're going to pay. And the fact that they're able to pay that property tax, their kids were able to go to better schools. So it's right. So in my head, I was thinking, okay, well, let's say let's say there is no redlining, and let's say these banks give loans to um, black people who can't afford to pay the loans or the property tax. Well, if you can't afford to pay the loan or the property tax, then yeah, then your kid can't be going to a good school, right? Like at the end of the day, and even I'm I'm old enough to start looking at buying a home and, and property tax. If you can't, if you, if your numbers don't match the books and if you can't afford to pay the property tax, then your kids won't be able to go to a good school. So the point I'm making is that um, you get what you pay for. Could they afford to send Jamal to a great school? Well, well, in the first place, they couldn't, right? But the assumption in the video is that poor Jamal, he should be able to go to the same school as Kevin. But he can't because his parents don't make enough. So you got to go to the other school. But that's a problem. Yeah. Well, I mean, so now you're drilling down into into one particular area, which I think is important because it's, it's a really good illustration. I think, first of all, it's important to say that the Bible, the, the Christian worldview, does not have a concept of racism. The, the reason for that is that we're all part of one race. So we're all in Adam, and then we're all descendants of Noah and his family. And then when you look in the... Uh, the um, Table of Nations and the Tower of Babel, you get the uh, the historical account of why and how people spread out across the earth to taking their uh, genetic distinctives with them and different cultures developed. So uh, Paul is very clear in Acts 17, from one blood he's made all men in, in every nation. So there is only one race, and that's the human race. However, we understand what people are saying when they talk about race. Ra the, the modern concept of racism, uh, in part, uh, comes up through um, ideas of European um, supremacy and rationalistic thought. Um, Charles Darwin's notion that um, there are multiple origins for the human race and the descent of man, and that some are more evolved than others and all of that. But it's not a Christian idea. It's not a biblical idea, and it's important to say that. Secondly, it's important to say that um, we would not want to justify anything that the Bible says equal uh, fair weights and measures, right? God despises unjust weights and measures. So if, if um, the two of you were coming to me as a bank manager and you're basically in a, a very similar situation and you've got the capability to pay back a loan and I give the loan to one of you and not the other based on the color of your skin, that is unjust, Right. So and so we have to be we have to be we have to be clear about that. That that is an that's that's an injustice because we because vengefulness, resentment and prejudice is a reality of the human condition because of sin. And no policy, no government handout, no government strategy is ever going to eradicate the problem of sin in the human heart, which produces all kinds of prejudices. And, um, and they cut in every different direction. We all know that. Well, we all know that, the, that there are tensions between all kinds of different ethnic groups. There are tensions within ethnic groups. Um, when we think about even the issue of slavery, for example, um, most people are not aware of where the term slave comes from. And it comes from the term Slav, 
right? The Slavs, and the Slavs are a white European peoples in what we now call parts of Eastern Europe. Long before the first African was ever brought to uh, the West in the uh, European North American slave trade. So even slavery was never about uh, uh, the color of people's skin for the most part in history. By the way, and this is important for our listeners to understand, the slavery has been the norm. Freedom is the exception. And it emerged only through the, uh, the steady and gradual application of the truth of the Christian gospel. The whole story of scripture is from slavery to freedom. It's the story of the Hebrews out of Egypt. It's the story of uh, freedom from slavery to sin and death. It's the story of the New Testament that is neither bond nor free, male nor female. We're all one in Jesus Christ. You see Paul in Philemon appealing for the, uh, saying, I'm going to pay whatever is owing, whatever he owes you, I'm going to pay it. Please release your brother in Christ. The direction Paul uh, lists slave traders amongst others, sinners who will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is in the institution of man theft and enslavement. In the Old Testament, man theft and enslavement, that is kidnapping and slavery. So to kidnap somebody and put them into slavery carried the death penalty. So when, when you see the propagation of those ideas historically, that was a pagan idea, it was a pagan notion, it's different from the worker or the indentured service that you see in the Hebrew Bible, that's perhaps another discussion. Um, but this concept of, um, uh, of, uh, of racism is one that the, 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 the Bible doesn't know and works against, um, as with the whole conception of, of slavery. So it is true that we can look at different aspects in our society and look in almost any institution within society and see prejudice at work, <laughs> see uh, um, uh, resentment at work, see vengefulness at work. And as Christians, we have the answer to that. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the law of God. Um, but in the specific instance you mention, one of the things that people don't look at is the fact that this, the, the whole issue of property tax well, that goes back to our earlier discussion. Where in scripture or where in the history of Christendom are property taxes sanctioned, a tax against property, so that the state can fund, those are, those are new. Property taxes and income taxes were basically came in around the time of the First and Second World War in the West. So the idea that the state has the right to tax your property so that it can fund state education is part of the problem of this cycle that you're talking about, because actually it was the churches that used to provide education. And um, when you look at the, um, and the, the intellect, I would recommend to every listener, one of my favorite um, uh, American intellectuals is the, uh, the, the black economist, Thomas Sowell. He's written a fantastic book called Intellectuals and Society. Everybody who is interested in this topic ought to read it. Um, and uh, he picks up on a couple of very interesting facts. Maybe Should do a tight piece episode? because I scribbled them, I scribbled a couple of things down. So in 1890, he says, and in 1930, unemployment was lower for blacks than whites in America. Um, he also says that in the 1960s, two thirds of black children um, were in two parent families. And he says, actually, a hundred years ago, there was a higher percentage of blacks who were married than whites. And, some, and in different periods, there were a higher percentage who were actually in the labor force than whites. Uh, well, I would say that fundamentally what Sowell is arguing is that you cannot 
look at institutions that convey or perpetuate a certain disparity as the cause of that disparity. Uh, and I would argue that the fundamental cause of this change in, in, in America is religious and cultural. And you, if you look at the collapse of the white family in England, um, it, which has happened uh, actually across the board, you know, there's rather unkindly, we have the expression white trash, where you've got three generations who've never had a job. They've all been on welfare, grandfather, father, son. Um, you have whole communities where that's the case, where people have never worked, where you've got um, masses of out of wedlock children uh, and unemployment and then criminality and so on. The same effect that you see in Britain with the, with, in the white community is what you saw when welfare, mass government welfare was introduced in the United States and um, money was offered to uh, single parent black families and the uh, the black family steadily collapsed to the point where today 75% of black children don't grow up in a family with a dad. And actually people like Denzel Washington, I was watching an, inter an interesting interview with Denzel Washington, who's one of my favorite uh, actors uh, the other day. He was talking about this. He was saying, you know, you can't, you, we have to be careful that you don't, uh, uh, you don't overlook the thing that's right in front of you with respect to some of these disparities. So, um, there's a cultural and, 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 and religious phenomenon at work here as well, fundamentally. Wow, that's, that, that's really helpful because, you know, just looking at the structure and following it in the video and, and looking at the property tax, you're like, okay, well. It's a convincing argument. Pardon? It's on, a, on its surface, it seems convincing. Like, you know, it's presented in a manner that is well-structured. No one's kind of challenging it to go, okay, wait, hold on. What is that? And, and you know, me being economically minded, I always say, you know, you could argue unequal outcome is a reason to investigate. Mm -hmm. And and I think you laid it out really well, tracing it back to, to Rousseau, that unequal outcome is being attributed to structural problems without doing the due diligence to find cause and effect. They're just attributing cause and effect. Right. And of course, there were um, certain Jim Crow laws um, and uh, the, 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 some of the legacy of um, the slave trade that we, we can't overlook and say they have no significance. But they were done away with a long time ago. I mean, Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Act. And of course, we had this. It's interesting that poverty rates were higher prior to the civil rights movement in America, among, in the black community, but criminality was lower. So you can't simply point to criminality, uh, to, to poverty and say, well, it's poverty that causes the criminality because of property taxes and so on. And that's the basic problem. Because actually, the, the, the numbers, as Thomas Sowell points out, uh, the research doesn't support that claim. Uh, you have a, 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 you can have a, a, an increase in the standard of living and in wealth, and, an, and at the same time, an increase in crime. Um, so the... Um, the, the, what's happened is you've in the West now we've combined that with a, a message that the intelligentsia has conveyed for now 50 years, but especially the last 25 years, that there are victim groups, even though if you look at American law or Canadian law or British law, there is no law that you could point to that says here is a law that unfairly discriminates against the Irish or against the Chinese or against blacks. 
there's the rule of law and as under the rule of law there is a, a fundamental kind of equality there and and um, there's no doubt then and, and there can be no doubt that uh, there are cycles that people get caught in of criminality and fatherlessness and so on and so forth and then arrest and delinquency and then recidivism so rates of reoffense and so forth poverty criminality yes and the um, the Christian gospel breaks into all of that, brings the light of the truth of the gospel into it, into whatever community, and uh, brings about taking responsibility, not claiming vic victimhood, not dividing people up into us and them, not using race baiting as a strategy for um, stirring up social and civil unrest, and actually le letting the life of the, of, of the truth of Christ and the principles of the word of God Transform, and this was the key. Like the the the, the fact that a hundred years ago there were just on average slightly more married two parent families in the black community than there were in the white community was because of the strength of the gospel in the black community. It was the strength of the Christian world and life view in that community that 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 uh, meant meant the the employment rate was what it was. So we have to then question this introduction of mass welfare into certain communities. Of course, we have to question the, the introduction of mass abortion into those communities as well by the state, state-funded. Margaret Sanger was an utterly prejudiced woman who founded Planned Parenthood, who supported eugenics and hated Hispanics and black people and wanted rid of them. So 70% of the abortion clinics were established in black and Hispanic neighborhoods. Nobody talks about that. Um, and uh, one of the things we see today, of course, is that the majority of killing of blacks in America is gang-related black-on-black violence. And the, the, the notion that, that this video makes out, as you pointed out, uh, that this is really attributable to property taxes is very reductionistic and uh, at best holds only a kernel of truth. Um, when the church took responsibility for education, not the state, uh, then there was, then, then schools were uh, charitable and private, and you didn't have the creation that didn't create a systemic issue in those uh, neighborhoods. Now, of course, if you are married and you get a job, your upward trajectory means you can move out of the poorest neighborhoods, get into a better neighborhood, and, and, and even if you are in the state system, find yourself in better schools with better upward right. mobility. It's funny, uh, I remember listening to an episode of The Briefing with Al Muller. And he was saying that for young people, uh, young adults trying to make their way in the world and create wealth, a lot of young adults think, okay, I'm going to get my stuff together before I find um, a spouse. Um, but Al was saying, well, no, you find a spouse and you guys create wealth together. You get married and you create wealth together. Now, I'm sure you guys can attest to this too. Only until I got married did my life actually begin. Meaning, <laughs> no, no, but when you think about it as a man, like prior to marriage, there's there's, there's no urgency for anything, you're right? You know, right. you're just playing video games and going about your business. But as soon as you marry somebody, now the conversation changes. Okay, like okay, let's buy a house. Um, how do we plan to retire? And these are the things where your life actually begins. Uh, how many kids do we want to have? Let's let's pay down your debt, then we'll pay down ours. Dave Ramsey snowball effect. And now you're talking like an adult, um, and and you're you're 
accumulating wealth together. But before you can accumulate that wealth together, uh, you have to understand relationship and, and the power of marriage versus just, responsibility. Okay, well, yeah. This is just my girlfriend. Um, and although we're, we've been together since grade 10, right? <laughs> you get through university, we get together since grade 10. He has his own account. She has her, his own account. There's no urgency. Everybody's doing something separate and you can't accumulate wealth that way. Now look, boom, you have a kid. Right. Now you have a kid. And now it's just like, oh, well, my stuff isn't together. What are we going to do? And it's just scrambling yeah. from there. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think you know, nothing gives you more of a jolt in the world than the necessity of taking responsibility for, for, for a little one. And you're absolutely right. You've hit on something really important. I mean, and all of the studies bear this out. Um, the married family that stays together becomes prosperous, m more prosperous than any other um, uh, unit or attempt or, 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 or arrangement. And uh, one of the ways to make yourself poorer pretty quickly is to get divorced. Mm. Oh, yeah, yes. Oh, yeah. Right? Yes. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 and so, you know, as you see with, um, you know, rates of divorce on the rise, at, you know, close to pushing 50% and so forth, these are all reasons why what these videos that go viral, they have this reductionistic view. They try and pick on one issue and they say, right, here's the cause. Rather than seeing the institution, say, of a bank or taxation as merely conveying a disparity. They see it as the cause of the disparity. Um, and uh, the, um, the, I think the one place where you probably could make that argument actually is the family. That if you, if you have a family that stays together uh, and you have um, uh, you know, responsibility taking within marriage, you do actually see there a uh, um, an, an, an institution that will convey um, and actually is a root cause of a wealth and prosperity and success disparity. Children who have a dad are about 20 times less likely to get involved with crime, are more likely to succeed in school, they're more likely to um, get a, a decent job, um, on and on and on and on. And there you have a cause. But what is the ultimate cause of the idea of the family? And this is where Thomas Sowell doesn't go. Um, and, and, and this is what these, these viral videos that reduce the whole issue to a four-minute, five-minute cartoon can't deal with, which is the religious root of the issue, the family. Now, notice, for example, I, of course, I've had to do the research on the Black Lives Matter movement. And one of the things that they are attacking in this, in this public movement is what they call the patriarchal family structure. Man, that's, well, that's it. Well, that's, that's very clear. And that's what everybody's been harping about. Yeah, totally right. agree. And, and, and they, because there's a religious root there that that's God's creational order. It's God's creational structure. And uh, why all of a sudden uh, is that movement championing feminist and queer theory and all these other Transgender. causes, transgenderism and everything else. And it's basically this Marxist utopian vision of the world because it has a, re a fundamentally a religious root. The religious root of the family is the Hebrew scriptures, the Christian faith, it's creational order and structure. And if we get that right and we submit our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, we can steadily deal with everything else. Does that excuse our corrupt police officers 
uh, killing people in the street. No, no it no, does it not. No. And, and there you have an issue of juridical responsibility. That's the criminal justice system must prosecute such people to the fullest extent of the law. Now, unfortunately, in Minnesota, that family, the Floyd family, aren't going to get justice because the justice in the Bible says that that warrants the death penalty. But in 1911, I think it was, Minnesota got rid of capital punishment. So uh, now that's, a, that's maybe another yeah. subject <laughs> yeah. altogether. That's another right? podcast. But, but there you see, that would be justice for that family. Yeah, I, I agree. But, but essentially, the situation with um, George Floyd is being exploited now by a political ideology that wants to reinvent and remake society. Interestingly, Darnell, in the, in the, in the likeness, and this is, I think, the supreme irony of the, of the Black Lives Matter movement, in the likeness of the image of the ideology of white European progressives. Where's the, where's the traditional African vision that they're promoting? And they're, it's not there. They're promoting the vision of European white progressive intellectuals that they want to impose on everybody else. Right. It's funny because when you look at traditional um, nationalistic black groups like uh, the Nation of Islam and so forth, yeah, they those militant groups head by men, headed by men denounce Black Lives Matter. Right. Like they, they, they think it's nonsense because they're saying, okay, well, why would you affirm the power of white people to tell them that Black Lives Matter? Why would you, why would you wait for them to affirm that? As black people, we should be independent and not looking for affirmation from our oppressors. That would be their argument. For me, the, what I'm seeing now in light of this whole George Floyd thing, so I have this uh, hypothesis that um, because black Christians have, a, have embodied the black ethos and they have abandoned, they've, well, they've, they've embodied the, the black ethos and abandoned the Imago Dei. And I believe the Imago Dei, um, us being made in the image of God, being human, and what happened when... Um, with the Darwin um, theory of evolution and, and, and race, when white people said, okay, we're a notch above human, then that means blacks are a notch below human. Yeah. So over, over the centuries, you know, blacks have risen, um, being less seen as less than human, and now we have been seen as human, and now we're embodying that black ethic, and now we are, we've kind of done what the oppressor has done and seen ourselves as a notch above human. So in that, the danger in that is now you live, we live vicariously through each other. So when you're seeing George Floyd being killed, the narrative with black people is, oh, I saw my cousin. I see my dad. I see my friend. I'm afraid to walk down the street. I'm afraid to call 911. I'm afraid. I'm afraid. That's my cousin. That's Darnell. And living vicariously through people, especially when you're watching that death, that's what causes the, this trauma, this racial trauma, this vicarious trauma this uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome. And that was the danger of abandoning the Amako day as opposed to seeing yourself as a human. When he, when he was being killed, the, the response was, oh man, this is terrible. A human life has been lost. But that's not, that's, not what, that's not what the narrative is. It's not that a human life was lost. It's that a black life was lost. And because the black life was lost, that's more serious than a human life being lost. Hence, Sam Say's article, on, you know, for black people, racism is worse than murder. And that's 
what I was kind of seeing. Yeah. And it, it helps to account for the fact that uh, we, we don't see the same concern about Planned Parenthood and the, the, the 20 million black lives that have been lost over the last 40 or 50 years through abortion or the, um, the, the, the devastation of the, of the black on black violence because that doesn't fit the, the, the oppression matrix narrative, right, of, of the identification that you're talking about. And I think um, uh, we need to, there, I think there is a place for, for Christians to talk about um, how can we in the life of our own churches think about what it means to um, find reconciliation with those who feel wounded, right? I mean, if there are you know, Toronto is a place where, I mean, my own church, Westminster, it looks like Toronto. It's, it's as multicultural as Toronto is. And so, you know, these, these are not, we have a, we have a wonderful uh, West Indian man on our elders board who's church planting as well in the West Indies. Um, our church community looks like, looks like Toronto, but where there are situations where there's been, um, uh, prejudicial attitudes towards one another, that those things should be dealt with and addressed where they're real. But this notion of living vicariously, as you put it through, and then, and then all these sort of uh, white politicians and intellectuals sort of prostrating themselves before the ideology and repenting for their whiteness and everything else, I think is just insulting um, to uh, the, the average uh, member of any ethnic minority, black, Asian, whatever, that they need some kind of um, they need some kind of corporate white repentance for whiteness uh, to elevate them. Um, what we need is to all take responsibility in terms of the gospel and God's law for one another and uh, for the for, for the truth, and and that's the only way we can advance justice in the world. Mm -hmm. Right, and, and it's funny that you, you you talk about you just mentioned justice, and the shout of the protesters is justice for George Floyd and justice for others. And so it seems like, and I guess I'm confused. Um, you help me think through. So part of, so the officers have been caught and been tried and that's it. So is that justice or is there more? Is there more to uh, Derek Chavon being um, charged and sent to jail? Is there more? Because again, because he got caught, he was caught. So, but the shouts are still justice yeah. For George Floyd, so I'm just like, okay, well, what yeah. more could be done? Uh, I just want to add to that because I think there's a, a good sort of related question. When we are, you already talked about capital punishment kind of be taken away. Um, you know, I think the question about justice can also kind of tie into, you know, is there a biblical founding for sort of um, prison and the way that we sort of, you know, administer what we're calling justice, especially I think of also we're, we're taxing the people in order to accomplish these things as well. Um, so I'm just, you know, I think that plays into it a bit too. Sure. Well, I think this whole term social justice, um, we need to be careful with because it implies social guilt. If justice is social, then guilt is social. Um, and yet scripture is clear that you, that the, you cannot, um, punish the, uh, the son for the sins of his father, right? Um, although God himself in his justice and righteousness visits, uh, his judgment upon generations, sometimes multiple generations, you cannot, uh, punish in terms of the law, 
um, the son for the crimes of the father, which says, which means that justice is not social. That's a mis- in the sense that justice, the idea of justice only comes into play in human society. So it's, it's a redundancy to stick social on the front of justice. If I'm stuck on a desert island on my own, the question of justice really, unless you're going to say there's some kind of eco-justice for the ocean or whatever while I'm there, doesn't come into play. But if we're going to have social justice, it means there's social guilt. Now, with respect to George Floyd, you know, the chance, no justice, no peace, and so forth. If the perpetrators are tried and penalized in terms of the full force of the law, in terms of the juridical nature of the crime that's been committed against George Floyd, justice has been served. Now, I argued earlier that uh, I don't think that in the fullest sense of biblical justice, in this case, in terms of the penal sanctions, in terms of the punishment, justice is served um, if first-degree murder doesn't meet with the death penalty. Uh, but in the sense that the, 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 the course of the law that anybody else would be subject to has been served uh, if once the trial and the sentencing happens, um, that's, that would be juridically justice because justice at that point isn't social. The notion that you could then say, well, the whole of the society is guilty for the death of George Floyd. That's where we run into the problems. Do we, when, we, when we say that we want, the, 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 these groups say they want the end of the, the, the defunding of the police, well, does that mean that all of the black police officers are to lose their jobs as well, who, who p- police often predominant, are, are often the dominant number of police officers in areas that have a larger black population? Um, are we saying that uh, that social justice for for for, for George Floyd means the uh, the the basically the if we've got no police and we've got no arrests, therefore we've got no courts, therefore we've got no justice system? Um, is that just that's just a utopian notion, right? To your point about um, prisons, and I think this is this would be an interesting one to develop in terms of Christian thinking about penology, about um, how you deal with criminality. Prisons are not a biblical idea. Um, the, uh, they're not a Christian idea. The, the, I, the custody in uh, the scriptural worldview and in Christian history was only temporary while you awaited trial. Um, once you were, were, had been tried, you were uh, sentenced either to some form of corporal punishment, um, some form of uh, uh, financial restitution, or if it was a capital crime, um, you were sentenced to death. So there were no sort of large houses of career criminals <laughs> learning to be better criminals, yeah. or you know, um, le- you know, learning how to you know, and joining gangs and becoming Islamic radicals in prison yeah, and yeah, all of this yeah. kind of stuff. That didn't that that never existed, right? Uh, it was a humanistic idea. Think about the word. We invented what we called the penitentiary, and the penitentiary penitence. The penitentiary was designed like a monastery where the idea was that in terms of a humanistic philosophy, you could take an individual who committed a crime, put them in a monastic-like environment, right, in a penitentiary where like a tabula rasa, like there you could sweep their mind clean of all the negative societal influences. In isolation. In isolation. Mm -hmm. And then when you'd clean their mind, they they would be rehabilitated and released into society, right? And, And we know from all the studies that this doesn't work. And so now the state has a new industry. 
It's called the prison industry. It's a, it's a big money industry. And it pumps people into there for petty crimes who should be these people who have, you know, been dealing drugs or committed various other petty thefts or crimes or minor offenses should not be in prison. They should be making restitution to those whom they've committed the crime against, to not the state, but to the offended party. And then there can be reconciliation and restoration of that individual to society. Uh, that would be the biblical model. And, and there might be a certain amount of corporal punishment for other crimes and capital punishment for the really serious uh, offences. Um, custody is, was in the scriptural world in life view temporary. And it's definitely the case that because of incarceration rates because of criminality in the uh, uh, black community in America, which I would put down to the religious problem in the family and fatherlessness primarily, primarily, um, a cycle does develop. And um, the prison system actually reinforces and perpetuates that cycle. So there is an area of looking at justice where we could say this could be addressed. And people like, I think, the Prison Fellowship, Charles Colson, the uh, organization, the late Charles Colson, did look at things like this and how can we actually address some of the issues that are being perpetuated and not just say, because what is the answer, Donnell, of these groups? The answer of these groups is... We need to redistribute more wealth. We need more state welfare. We need more state programs. We need more state intervention. We need more state education. We need the state to save the underprivileged. We need the state to, to save blacks in America. What, what, and actually, when you look at the indigenous population in Canada, all the state has done is destroy them. Right. That's our next well, you episode. Wanna, right? You, you want to turn... You want to turn north, you want to turn the world, they want to turn the world into the, the, the status, these, these, these totalitarian progressives, these Marxists, they want to turn the world into one big reservation where everybody is living off the state and where people's sense of uh, worth, of individuality, their sense of responsibility, their sense of accomplishment, their sense of freedom, their sense of purpose and under God is basically destroyed mm -hmm. yeah that's good because you you addressed yeah that was one of the principles in in the video jail uh in the school to prison pipeline as they call it um yeah the new jim crow um there's a book called the new jim crow about uh black incarceration rates being um extremely high and and the argument being that blacks are being targeted um and and making money off of the jail system yeah. a lot of money so yeah the u.s is pretty bad for that in in terms of you know i mean you could use this term in a much in a multiple of ways but the policing for profit is is sort of a term that's been thrown around that i think has some legitimacy you know in multiple facets whether it's the prison system whether it's confiscation of assets and, and there's different well, things well the prison system employs a lot of people there's massive construction involved the usa has some of the highest incarceration rates in the world now you know canadians who often you know think that they're better than the US in all kinds of ways, actually, um, our crime rates per capita are as high, if not higher, actually, than, than in the United States. So we've got nothing to brag about. But this, what is very, very clear in Western society is that the prison system, as we have developed it, in, it from a humanistic perspective, uh, is a failure. Um, 
and the and I would go back again and again to the fundamental religious root of these things. There is, there is, what these groups frequently want to look at is external reasons for disparity rather than the internal reasons. The the, the life of the individual where you started, Darnell, the the life of the family, the character of the person because of the, the, because of the cultivation of character. Uh, The the responsibility that scripture requires that every individual take uh, for themselves to take personal responsibility to worship and serve God, to, to walk in obedience to, you know, how, when was the last time you heard a sermon, for example, in the church on Paul's admonition, if any man doesn't work, <laughs> yeah, he, doesn't he shouldn't eat. You know, the, these things are, are infrequently talked about. Um, uh, Paul talks about hands not being idle. There's a reason for that. And as you pointed out, if um, if young men are sat in their mum's basement playing video games without a dad, and they then look and they envy what other people have got, and uh, and and they think, well, maybe a criminal life is the way to get those things. This is something that then gets perpetuated. But actually, when you look at that, the, that. Um, people of all ethnicities who've gone to college and get that uh, and uh, get maybe get a college degree you see that their outcomes all the outcomes start to to harmonize and in fact we're at the point now because of the of the collapse of the white family in the west and the strength of the asian families coming out of china and japan and and south korea is getting to the point where um the universities are taking a kind of affirmative action to leave places open for white students as well as black students because the, the, the because the stability of these Asian family units, these traditional family units, is giving them good educational outcomes. It's giving them a leg up. And it's interesting that in the BIPOC, uh, what is it, uh, black, indigenous, people of color, the Asians don't count, right? The Chinese don't count because they see different outcomes and that's that's cultural it's internal it's not external i've heard it claimed it's because they're closer to white <laughs> well, and, and it, like it, you know oh so the, the, you know, the, the white privilege sort of you know extends to them <laughs> the, both india and china um india had saw more slavery there were more slaves in india than in the entire western hemisphere um and uh China was one of the great slave cultures of the world. So um, I don't think we can, I don't think we can put it down to uh, the, 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 you know, the Chinese skin tone. No, I know, I know you would agree the, 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 um, I, I'm just challenging that that cultural narrative that you've heard, which because almost any reason then is going to be is going to be invented to, for anybody who doesn't quite any ethnic minority that doesn't fit the narrative, the progressive neo-Marxist narrative doesn't get included. So um, just to to wrap up, I thought you know there's there's sort of a, a question that's kind of been in my head that that does kind of tie a lot of this in. So we were talking about the policing, we're talking about. Uh, spheres of sovereignty and, you know, thinking about sort of, and I'll use this term just very loosely, but the idea of like victimless crimes to me a lot of times gets into sort of policing of morality. And so I just wanted to kind of put that towards you in regards to, you know, how much is the state kind of stepping into the church's sphere of of sovereignty? Um, and, And maybe you can speak to that in general as we wrap up. 
Yeah, I mean, it's not the it's not the task of the state to be anybody's parent or anybody's priest uh, or pastor. It's the task of the state to um, uh, establish a harmony of legal interest, public law, um, and to administer the rule of law to be a to be a ministry of justice. Um, the uh, the the efforts on the part of the state to preach a new to preach a kind of new morality um, has become uh, one of the features of the of the modern uh, uh, nanny state and its attempt to re to to replace the church. Um, the the uh, just, uh, restate for me the the, the second part so of your question because it's uh, asking about sort of the the victim you know the amount of victimless yeah. crime that we really see yeah. you know. You know, and I, okay, not to get sure. into specifics because you can, you know, get in the weeds there. But just how much of that is sort of demonstrating, you know, stepping outside of, yeah. you know, yeah. their sphere of sovereignty and into the church's morality. Sure. Well, think about it this way: um, not all sins are crimes, mm -hmm. and the, the, the victimless crime is is beginning to say, "Well, we are going to we are going to make um, people's feelings, people's thoughts." Mm -hmm. uh, new crimes, right? We, we're going to the need for thought police. Mm -hmm. um, but Scripture is actually very clear: the number, the number of, the number of actual crimes is fairly limited. How are you going to stamp out covetousness? Is that a crime? Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, or, or even lying? Now, of course, perjury in a court of law. But to tell a lie, or to uh, you know, to misrepresent something, lust, lust is sinful, but it's not a crime. And the problem with these, the, with the state's morality, and with the with the the the, um, the morality of the progressive utopian ideals, the you know, the Marxist utopias, or the neo-Marxist utopias, is that they want to turn um, every sin, and they often develop new sins, into crimes, um, for which classes or groups within society must be punished. So it doesn't matter how you treat any a given individual how you respect others how you give to charity how you uh, support the rule of law those things are irrelevant because you belong to a class that has uh, a um that that has blood on its hands that is guilty because of its thoughts uh, because of its um some of its um uh, cultural norms and uh, we must get those people for it. Uh, and so that's happening in the, in the sociological context, in the broader context, but it's happening in these individual contexts, in these human rights tribunals, these kangaroo courts that want to punish people for thinking or speaking in a given way that we're actually removing um, fundamental freedoms. So we can be thankful that we have a merciful God who says, these things are crimes, X, Y, and Z, and there are many sins but the civil magistrate can't haul you over the coals for them and send you to prison for them. And thank goodness for that, because if that were the case, who would be out of prison? <laughs> right? No one. Um, so it, we have to, it's, it's the sphere of the life of the church that deals with sin. It's the province of the state to deal with crime. Right now, of course, some all crimes, or, or actually, that's not the case anymore. That all crimes are sins because we've invented all kinds of crimes that aren't sins. But, but frequently, sin and crime coincide. But frequently, it does not. And so, in those, um, that's where we see very clearly there sphere sovereignty at work again. Right, the distinction, the the typical 
um, law of the state and its character and the church. The church can bring me into discipline for uh, covetous attitudes. It can bring me into discipline for um, heretical, holding to heretical doctrine and propagating it. But that's not the province of the state, right? And my parents, when I was a child, could discipline me for being rude, um, uh, could uh, um, tell me what my bedtime was. And enforce that, but it's not the church to tell me what time for the church to the elders to tell me what time to go to bed, or for the state to be reading me my bedtime story and 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 telling me what time I've got to go to bed. So we see at work there again, as you're saying, those different law spheres, and this is why it's so important that in all these different areas, the different spheres of life stay within the domain that God has assigned to them and apply their typical law structure only in their own area. Because that, mean, that, that means that civil society, fr the freedom of the individual, freedom of expression and so forth, that actually true freedom, is economic freedom, these things are maintained. And um, these, these revolutionary movements, however they dress themselves up in terms of queer theory, feminism, race social theory and justice. so forth, social justice, they, in the end, the net result is the same. They take away everybody's freedom. Everybody, yes. no matter what yes. color you are. Right? And that we have to resist. Right. Wow. Thanks. <laughs> it, it's been awesome. I mean, I'm sure we could keep going. Yeah. I, I know my mind's just keeps spinning. But no, this was really good. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. So thanks a lot. Thanks. A well, lot. thanks for having me. I hope that's maybe laid something of a foundation for some of the later yeah, no, discussions. No, and, that you'll be and I'm sure it'll be helpful for our listeners to um, give them a primer and principles to interpret what they're seeing um, in the world. So yeah, th thanks, th thanks a lot, Pastor and, Boat. And if our, our listeners want to reach out to you or, or you know see some of your content, where would you direct Appreciate them? that. So it's ezrainstitute.ca. People can learn about all of our uh, residential, short. they're just short-term residential immersive training programs in Christian worldview, cultural apologetics, Christian philosophy. And uh, you can learn about our programs on our website there. And also there are free resources there, lots of articles, interviews, sermons, as well as um, uh, journals, Jubilee, and uh, access to our, our store, which has a lot of our books and uh, monographs and so forth that we hope people will benefit from and make use of. Yeah, and this beautiful campus, uh, whenever you guys uh, hold conferences, uh, yeah, you guys really got to come out here and check it out. It's, uh, it's beautiful. It's like a, it's like a resort. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So thanks a lot. Right, God's good. Thank, yeah, you. thank, thank you. you.